0: Talking to alien civilizations and the efforts to keep our dirty germs off other worlds. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The show Exploring Space Exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Are we alone in the universe? Probably not. Scientists are hard at work looking for signs of life here in our solar system and beyond. But what will we say to those extraterrestrials when we find them? Author and journalist Daniel Oberhaus delves into the efforts to talk with alien civilizations in his new book, Extraterrestrial Languages. We'll talk with Oberhaus about the attempts to speak with other civilizations in the universe and why many scientists think it's a bad idea to reach out to them first. Then, as we continue to venture into our solar system, there's a greater need to keep it clean. On this week's I'd Like to Know segment, we'll chat with planetary scientists from the University of Central Florida about keeping our dirty Earth germs off other planets and moons, and why the search for life depends on it. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the latest space stories making headlines. NASA's two commercial crew providers reached big milestones this month as they worked to launch astronauts to the International Space Station. Boeing's CST-100 Starliner has met the rocket that will give it a ride to the station on the company's first uncrewed test mission. The capsule is now mated with ULA's Atlas V rocket ahead of a launch December 17th. The Starliner will launch to the station, spend a few days docked to the ISS, then head home. If all goes well, NASA astronauts Mike Finke and Nicole Mann, along with former NASA astronaut, now Boeing astronaut, Chris Ferguson, will be on the next Starliner mission to the ISS. Meanwhile, SpaceX is preparing for a critical safety test of its capsule, the Crew Dragon. That's the sound of Crew Dragon's Super Draco engines firing during a test earlier this month. A similar test earlier this year ended with an explosion destroying the capsule. SpaceX engineers tracked the source of the anomaly, a faulty valve, and have fixed the issue. The engines will fire in an emergency to push the capsule and the astronauts away from the rocket to safety. Soon, SpaceX will test the engines mid-flight after launching the Falcon 9 from the space coast. It's the last major test for SpaceX before NASA astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley take the capsule for a spin on a crew test flight to the station. SpaceX and NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine said that mission could happen early next year. You can find these stories and more on our website, wmfe.org space. And give me a follow on Twitter. For the latest space news, I'm at SpaceBrendan. Brendan. We're on the hunt for extraterrestrial life in the universe, but what will we say to the aliens when we find them? Author and journalist Daniel Oberhaus writes about the efforts to talk with alien civilizations in his new book, Extraterrestrial Languages. Oberhaus joins us via Skype to talk about some of the early efforts to develop a way to communicate with aliens and how the message and medium of an alien hello is changing as technology advances. Oberhaus begins the conversation talking about early efforts to communicate with alien civilizations by the astronomer Frank Drake.
1: So, I mean, I, I would actually say that efforts to talk to aliens go, you know, they predated Drake, but he was definitely the first one to kind of bring it into the the modern era. He really got the ball rolling with an effort called Project Ozma, which, or Ozma rather, uh, that was the first scientific search for extraterrestrial life in the universe. So he looked at two nearby stars about 10 light years away. Obviously didn't find anything, but he kind of showed the scientific community that there were uh, rigorous ways to go about searching for extraterrestrial life. Um, and, you know, that year that he was doing this, this was around 1960. It was actually pretty auspicious for the kind of nascent field of communicating with extraterrestrials because at the same time that Drake was Uh, searching for signals around these two stars, a Dutch mathematician named Hans Freudenthal in the Netherlands was actually working on a uh, communication system that was uh, the first interstellar uh, language, I guess you could say, um, that he published the same year that Drake was doing this. So, you know, there were scientists, mathematicians working on both sides of this um, problem, you know, right in the same year, and then since then, it's just really exploded, and it's now a global field that dozens, if not hundreds, of mathematicians and scientists are involved in.
0: And kind of walk me through some of those efforts um, throughout the decades. Like, what organizations have sprung up, and and kind of what's been the method for them to try to communicate with um, you know extraterrestrial life out there?
1: Sure. Uh, so. Initially, it was um, there, it wasn't even really so much an organizational thing. Uh, Drake was working with the National uh, Radio Astronomy Observatory in Green Bank for actually most of his career, and uh, partnered with Carl Sagan in the 1970s to uh, do a few different uh, communication programs loosely construed. Uh, they worked together on the pioneer plaques that were sent up as well as the Voyager golden record. But um, as far as interstellar communication is concerned, their first kind of real effort was the Arecibo message from the telescope down in Puerto Rico. Um, and they sent a short message. It was broadcast over the course of about three minutes in 1974 toward a star cluster about 13,000 light years away. Uh, you know, As far as I can tell, neither Frank Drake nor Carl Sagan really had any illusions that this message would ever be intercepted. But nevertheless, they, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about how they would convey information in the message. So I would consider it a scientific thing. After that, the field of communication with extraterrestrial intelligence was pretty quiet um, in the mid 80s. Nothing was really broadcast for about 15 more years. And then in 1999, a uh, entrepreneur uh, whose name is actually is escaping me right now, but he ran a a program called... Um, Team Encounter out in Texas, and they were basically trying to commercialize this idea of sending messages into space. And so they crowdsourced thousands of messages from people all around the world, kind of short little uh, text-based messages. And they used that money that they raised from doing this—it costs like 50 bucks or something—to send a message into space. And they used that money to uh, send a really robust scientific message that was designed by two physicists named Stéphane Stéphane Dumas. And Yvonne Dutiel. Um And so that was really kind of the birth of, I guess, symbolic uh, messaging to extraterrestrial intelligences. So they did that in 1999. They did it again in 2003 with Team Encounter. And then in the last decade or so, you know, NASA has sent out a, uh, a Beatles song in 2008 to commemorate uh, the 50th anniversary of the White Album, I think it was. And then no, no one was really doing this in a really kind of serious, focused manner until a man named uh, Doug Backuk founded the Medi Institute in 2016. And their whole thing is, you know, designing and studying the concept of uh, interstellar communication, which is very controversial in the SETI community. I understand it caused something of were rifts when he kind of broke off to do this but since then they've sent two messages one last year and one the year before and as far as i can tell they can you know intend to continue doing this so now there is an official organization dedicated to doing this so who knows maybe maybe there'll be more in the future
0: daniel what what is in the message how, how did how does the message get developed um and and what does it say
1: Sure. Um, I mean, it depends on what message you're talking about. The Arecibo message, for instance, um, was just a binary uh, radio signal. uh, And when you would translate the binary code into a bitmap, where the ones and zeros are kind of like coloring in spaces on a grid, it it shows pictures, and those pictures supposedly represent stuff like DNA and uh, what have you, the numbers. So that was a pretty rudimentary one. The ones that I find really interesting are the ones that the Medi Institute just sent out over the past two years. They partnered with a music festival called Sonar in Barcelona, and they had a bunch of musicians craft short little songs. They're about 10 to- 15 seconds each. And they were supposed to convey different aspects of like human physiology, how we hear, how we appreciate uh, music. And then those were kind of the, the basis of the message. And then in addition to that, Doug and the team developed kind of like a primer that teaches aliens, you know, starting from like basic stuff like numerals, how to count to 10, some basic math, units of time, units of measurement. And from that, their thinking is that uh, extraterrestrials who receive this message will be able to kind of appreciate the fact that we've included music and we've included information earth. Obviously it's pure conjecture at this point, but you know, it's definitely a very clever method I think of communicating.
0: I mean, is is the goal to have to have a conversation um kind of like we're having right now, you know, I've I'm speaking with you over Skype, you know, my voice is turned into bits and bytes and sent over the internet and 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 then you respond back or you know, are these efforts to communicate with extraterrestrial civilizations more of like hey, we're here, this is what we're made out of, Um, and there's no expectation that there'll be something that comes back,
1: yeah, and and that's kind of where I think Hollywood has ruined us a little bit because we think about these movies like Arrival, where we have instantaneous communication because aliens uh, visit uh, visit us on Earth. When the reality is probably if we do make contact, it's going to be with a civilization that is you know at least ten light years away, probably something closer to hundreds or thousands of light years away. Which means that it's it's going to be hopefully a conversation. It would be great if we could send something out and get a reply, even if it's a reply in ten thousand years. But for all intents and purposes is, you know, anyone who sends out a message today is going to almost certainly be dead by the time a reply comes in. And, you know, I think on the one hand, that's kind of depressing to think that, you know, we'll never be able to have a back and forth with an alien. But on the other hand, you know, now that our planet is facing these global challenges like climate change, and you know, the threat of uh, thermonuclear war and stuff like that, I think it really helps to have projects like these messaging extraterrestrials that forces us to think on time spans of several, if not dozens of generations and to really take a long term view of the future. And that's hard to do. I mean, humans have only had symbolic writing for a few 1000 years. And if we're talking about a 5000 year lag between the time we send a message and the time we go back, I mean, we, we might be a radically different species if we even exist uh, at that point. So, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging, but it also suggests that when we design messages, we should really make them self-contained because we're not going to be able to have a real-time conversation at this point
0: they're not gonna be able to look up a a word like, like we'd be able to do now. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. You kind of have to hope that they understand what you're saying in the first go, because if they have to, you know, write back and say, Hey, what did you mean by uh, this thing right here? You know, it's 13,000 years is a long time to wait for a correction.
0: The, the book extraterrestrial languages. um, It does a really nice job of breaking down, designing um, an extraterrestrial language and, and the research, and and some of the hard science that went into, um, these efforts. But the most fascinating one to me was, was the dolphins. Can you talk a little bit about how dolphins are, are helping scientists with this?
1: Yeah. Dolphins and aliens have a really, uh, really storied history together, which actually goes back to Frank Drake and kind of these early efforts, um, after he had done his first search in 1960, he uh, he got a group of scientists together, including uh, Carl Sagan, Otto Struve, uh, you know, pretty much all the most eminent scientists who had thought about extraterrestrial life. There's about a dozen of them. He got them together for a small three day conference and um, kind of just to plot the future of SETI and whether this activity of looking for extraterrestrials should even have a future. And one of the people who was in attendance was a man named John Lilly, who at the time was spending his days down in uh, the Caribbean at, at a, a research institute he started started um, trying to talk to dolphins. And it sounds crazy, but and, and I mean, it was, but <laughs> he was taking it very seriously, as were a lot of uh, animal communication researchers at the time. And, you know, from Carl Sagan and uh, Frank Drake's perspective, they they looked at this as dolphins appear to have many of the hallmarks of what we would consider higher intelligence. They they appear to have a pretty robust language. And this wasn't just Lily talking. Modern research seems to back this up, too. They have very sophisticated communication system. So the thinking was, if we can't communicate with these, higher intelligences on earth there's no way in hell we're going to be able to talk to an alien it's just not going to happen so they invited lily down to the conference uh so he could kind of regale them with you know his efforts in establishing communication with dolphins you know everyone at the conference you know as far as we can tell was very smitten with the idea they they started calling themselves the order of the dolphin kind of (laughs) homage uh, to his research so, you know, Carl Sagan kind of abandoned this idea of dolphins being an analog, but not everyone did. And today there's a group of researchers, p- perhaps most notably a, a woman named Denise Herzing, who's just really wonderful. She goes down to the Caribbean every year and uses these uh, digital communication devices to try to establish rudimentary uh, conversation with uh, wild bottlenose dolphins. They've had limited success, but they have learned quite a bit about dolphin communication. And they, they actually partner with the SETI Institute to do research on how, you know, for instance, studying dolphin communications from, an information theoretic perspective can kind of help us set a lower bound on what an intelligent signal might look like. When you look at something like the distribution of, you know, lexical units or dolphin squeals, uh, you can kind of plot that on a graph and be like, well, this signal looks intelligent. And this is just random noise. So yeah, dolphins, I still think have a lot to teach us about what it means to be intelligent and what an intelligent signal might look like. But you know, we're we're no longer at a point where at least as far as I can tell, dolphins are really an analog. I think if if we're going to pretend we're talking to aliens on Earth, Earth, probably the best place to start is with human children um, which is a whole other <laughs> conversation but yeah
0: <laughs> um, in the book you you, you bring up all, all sorts of different ways to communicate um, as you mentioned in our conversation there's you know there's hardware communication like you know the Voyager discs um, there's radio signals that have been sent out from from Arecibo you mentioned music there's you speak about art Um is, is there kind of this, this consensus as what would be the best way to communicate with, with extraterrestrial life? Or is it kind of just like shotgun blast and, and you know send everything out there as we possibly can and, and see what we get back?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. There's definitely not a consensus. I mean, if anything, the consensus is we shouldn't be sending anything out at all. People who are sending messages are certainly in the minority. That said, right now, I think the best – option we really have is radio communication. However, I think looking to the future, I think optical communication using lasers is very promising because you can uh, press a lot of data. So yeah, I think that's really promising. And I think in terms of message content, I think what uh, Doug Backhack is doing at the Medi Institute and really focusing on art is uh, incredibly important, just because it's such a fundamental part of who we are as people. And like, in addition to language, you know, art is something that's found in every culture on our planet. And so to send a message without this aspect, I think would be to really leave out a huge part of what makes us human. So until we figure out how to use gravity waves or something to communicate, I think radio and one day, lasers are probably gonna be our our best option.
0: I'm curious what what's the aversion by the community at large to be even attempting communication like this
1: yeah so there's there's kind of uh four big arguments the The main one you hear a lot is that it's dangerous. I don't really buy that so much. um the thinking is that since we don't know the nature of extraterrestrial intelligence, it may very well be malevolent um if it has the ability to do interstellar travel, or to say, you know, send a, you know, computer virus in the form of a message. Maybe we don't want to make contact.
0: It's a pretty cynical view of, <laughs> of the universe,
1: huh? I agree. I, I, yeah, I think it says a lot about uh, how you think about people too, because obviously, you know, on Earth there's a lot of war and you know people get murdered and bad things happen all the time. But also, you know, humans I think are generally good, and you know, perhaps the same can be true of an extra terrestrial intelligence. Nevertheless, there's a strong contingent of people. I know Stephen Hawking, you know, prior to his uh, passing took this position. I think his argument was a bit more sophisticated. But yeah, people are worried that it might be dangerous. You know, I I kind of actually am in agreement that we probably shouldn't be broadcasting right now. Not because I think it's dangerous, but just because I think it's a waste of resources. When you do a SETI search, when you're looking for a signal, we have the ability to scan billions of channels um, across hundreds of uh, stars over the course of a year. But if we're going to send a message that often takes, uh, you know, several minutes, if not hours, if not days to send one message to just a handful of targets. And at this point, any star that we send it to is about as likely as any other to actually host intelligent life. You know, we can target stars that have potentially habitable planets, but we have no idea. You know, those are a dime a dozen at this point. So who knows if this given planet or that one actually has uh, ET there. So I think for now... We should think about this question of communicating with extraterrestrials in um, a theoretical sense. We should spend time researching uh, you know intelligence and crafting messages and symbolic systems that are resistant to errors in the interstellar medium and things of that nature. But if we're going to spend money on communicating across the cosmos, it's, SETI is always strapped for cash. We should be leaning into that. Let's look for a signal or signs for it of extraterrestrial intelligence and then we can start the conversation about whether or not to broadcast in earnest
0: and then there's the argument that what if they're waiting for that too (laughs) and then you know right
1: (laughs) right yeah that's the that's the kind of worrisome part is if everyone's listening and no one's taking that first step the universe would be quiet and as far as we can tell it is to that point uh i'll just say this that rather than sending messages it might be more worth our time to just set up a beacon perhaps on the far side of the moon or, you know, a large laser array on Earth. And we basically just send short pulses of light all the time. And so that, that way, we at least let someone know we're out there. It conserves resources. It's not, uh, it's, it's a dedicated beacon. We're not really sending information other than saying, hey, we're here. And that might be enough to get the ball rolling.
0: Uh, the book is Extraterrestrial Languages. Uh, we've been speaking with Daniel Oberhaus. Uh, he's the author and also staff writer at WIRE. Daniel, thanks so much for speaking with us.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Just ahead, how we're keeping our Earth germs off other worlds as we explore the solar system. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. As we search for life in the solar system, it's important we keep our dirty germs off other worlds. Space agencies have adopted rules of what's called planetary protections, the protocols in place to make sure our spacecraft are squeaky clean so they don't contaminate other planets or moons. But as more governments join the efforts to explore our solar system and private companies begin exploring places like the moon and asteroids, who's in charge of keeping the place clean? And why are pristine worlds so important to scientific discovery? Well, I took these questions to our expert panel on this week's I'd Like to Know segment, we're joined by Josh Caldwell, Jim Cooney and Addie Dove, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy.
2: So what is planetary protection? It's not like putting up a big barrier around the Earth necessarily, right? It's not creating some sort of force field or armor protection but around the Earth. That would be awesome. But that would be super <laughs> cool, and it's what I often think about when I hear planetary protection. For sure. But so planetary protection is this idea of there's two aspects: either both forward uh, protection and backward protection. So forward planetary protection is that we don't want to contaminate places we go, um, and then backward protection is we don't if we're bringing samples back from comets or the Moon or Mars, we don't want to bring contaminants contamination and pot- potentially biological sp- specimens here to Earth that could contaminate and cause problems. Um, and so planetary protection is this idea that we, for scientific reasons, we want to be able to study pristine samples and pristine environments that haven't been changed uh, by our human contaminants. And especially that's true when we're looking for, like, origins of life and life on other planets and things like that. Um, we don't want to take our own stuff with us and then be like, oh, look what we found. It looks exactly like this Earth thing.
1: Right. Um, by contaminants, do we just mean biological contaminants or are you talking about other things as well?
2: For the most part, it's biological contaminants. Yeah, so it's yeah, so any sort of biological organisms, there's like chemical contaminants that we're not super worried about cuz we always know but- we're going to be bringing chemistry But but we're
3: totally littering Mars already. I mean, we're just like trumping Mm -hmm. aeroshells and dead rovers and parachutes just willy-nilly on the surface of Mars. But before
2: we do that, we have to like do all this protection stuff on the ground. So those are built in clean rooms. Mm -hmm. Those are usually like heated to some high level. Um, And most of the way we just check right now is we look for spores of certain bacteria that we can look for Mm -hmm. um, on these spacecraft, which is sort of a... We've been doing that since the Voyager days of looking and seeing what spacecraft sort of have contamination on them and trying to reduce that by doing very clean environments and certain cleaning protocols and things like so that.
3: So it's squeaky clean junk we're leaving on
0: Mars. It is. Exactly. Yeah.
2: It <laughs> is.
3: Yeah, sterilized. But I tell you what, bacteria are hardy. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And there's also a lot of bacteria and things like that that we can't necessarily find in the lab that potentially, or maybe tardigrades or something that could potentially be on some of these planetary surfaces. Yes. <laughs> Who, who's
0: responsible for... Overseeing planetary protection. Is is it—is the onus on on the agencies that are sending stuff or is there well, a global galactic czar that is making sure all of these spacecraft are clean? A
3: galactic planetary protection czar would yeah. be the greatest job title ever. <laughs> uh, there is a treaty uh, governing these things and countries are signatories to that treaty. But they are then individually responsible for seeing that they adhere to the terms of the treaty. And there's not really a mechanism in place to deal with what happens if somebody just says, no, I'm not doing that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's the Outer Space Treaty. And it uh, generally, NASA has set the guidelines for what the sort of contamination and the protection rules should be. Um, there's an organization called COSPAR uh, that sort of governs that, that a lot of these other countries look to as well. It's the Committee on Space Research. Yes,
3: mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, Outgrowth of the Cold War days, actually, Mm -hmm. to uh, span the globe. And uh, and they're always updating and revising and proving these rules as we learn more about the places we're going to. So as water is discovered underneath the surfaces of some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, then all of a sudden we're like, oh, that place I thought couldn't possibly have life now becomes a potentially habitable place. So we want to be super careful about that. So missions that go to Jupiter and Mars then have to follow some Mm -hmm. rules, too. Mm -hmm. And I have to imagine that as, you know, folks are
0: planning on human missions to the moon and Mars, you know, this planetary protection is really going to have to be thought about long and hard because we are dirty species. (laughs) Me? (laughs) We're we're looking at you, Jim. Nobody was looking at Jim,
2: I promise.
3: (laughs) Yeah. No, that's obviously at some point kind of an impossible dilemma Mm -hmm. to solve because we are biological. We are also in some way sort of symbiotic with our uh, biome. We carry a bunch of bacteria with us, and you can do your best to try to keep that contained within your habitat and everything, but at a certain point, we're going to be contaminating. Mm-hmm. Life yeah. finds a way.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. And when we went to the moon, um, there were some protections put in place for going there, but not too many. Um, the moon is technically classified as like a category one body sill right now where we're supposed to not contaminate it when we send spacecraft. Um, but as we know, most places on the moon aren't habitable to life, which is what that would sort of be interested in. Um, and so there's most places on the moon we can probably go and not be too concerned about it. Places like the lunar poles where there's water, which we've talked about might have, have um some concern of causing contamination there um but i think that so like There's been this new report out that says here's some updated guidelines, and we need to sort of look every few years and update them as we get new technologies and as we learn more about different bodies and maybe have different places on planetary bodies be designated like, okay, humans can go here and spread your biomass. Here's the Um, dumpster of Here's the dumpster. You can grow your potatoes and whatever you want. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But then uh, over here, you have to keep it safe and pristine for science and for studying. Mm -hmm. And
3: And that that could work for a little while, but Mars has got an atmosphere – yeah, mm-hmm. it's going to move stuff around. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and even before
0: the human missions, you know, as as you mentioned, Addy, you know, there there's this focus on sample return. So you want to make sure that what we're bringing back is the most pristine sample, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of um. for we're soon we're going to be bringing back samples from a couple of comets uh, or from a couple of asteroids um, that have typically been very cold. So we're looking at a lot of sample return protocols for how do you keep those samples pristine? All the lunar samples we brought back, we kept in very just sort of clean, dry air and kept them relatively pristine. But if we bring back things from Mars or comets or asteroids, we need to have cold facilities. We need to have other places that we can sort of like sterilize things before we put them in. Um, So there's a lot of like questions about how we do that. And we really don't have all the answers right now. But there is some um, research like that goes on in Antarctica and they have samples that they try to keep pristine. Mm. From there, so there's lots of other research we can look at to sort of uh, mm. advise how we proceed. And
0: finally, how do commercial companies kind of throw a wrench in all these plans here? As as you know, we saw that the, the yes. space or the space IL uh, Beresheet lander was on the moon, and and other companies are looking at asteroids and, and lunar ambitions. How does that kind of mess everything up?
2: It does. It does.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, now but, there's all these companies and lots and lots more governments than used to do it, right? So. Global cooperation on something like this is not an easy task. Global cooperation on anything, as your listeners I'm sure well know, is next to impossible. This is going to be challenging.
0: It's so it's going to be a, a very dirty future for humans exploring the solar system, we, right?
3: We're, we're contaminating. There's <laughs> no getting around it. We're going we're to contaminate.
0: And the master contaminator, Josh Caldwell, <laughs> along with Jim Cooney and Addie Dove, they are the hosts of Walk About the Galaxy podcast and planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That was UCF planetary scientists Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney. They host the Walk About the Galaxy podcast. Find it wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you've got a question for our segment I'd like to know, send it in. Shoot me an email, are we there yet, at wmfe.org. Or find us on social media and drop your questions there. We're on Facebook and Twitter. You can just search for Are We There Yet podcast. Well, that's going to do it for this show. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Production assistance from Elizabeth Gonder. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. You can find more space news online at WMFE.org slash space. Never miss a show and get bonus content and interviews delivered straight to your smartphone or smart speaker subscribe to the Are We There Yet? podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.